0: Hi, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Buffalo History Museum podcast. My name is Anthony Greco, and I'm the museum's director of exhibits and interpretive planning. Here at the museum, we tell a number of stories, many of them well-known and others not. We work each day to discover more of these stories, these histories, and share them with our community. To do this, we often rely upon you, the members of our community, as well as educators and historians, to help us learn more about those who have built our community. Today, we're lucky enough to have with us a guest on the podcast to share one of these lesser-known stories, Dr. Barbara Nevergold. Dr. Nevergold is a graduate of Buffalo State College and received a doctorate in counseling education from the University at Buffalo. In 1999, she co-founded the Uncrowned Queens Institute for Research and Education on Women and has worked to create a model for the reclamation, collection, preservation, and dissemination of the biographic stories of African-American community builders. She has been a collaborator on numerous projects, including educational curriculum, oral history projects, as well as numerous radio and television programs. In fact, the Buffalo History Museum worked with Dr. Nevergold to realize a newly opened exhibit. The show is titled say their names, honor their legacies, and is part of a much larger oral history project being undertaken by the Uncrowned Queens Institute. The exhibit features the stories and portraits of over a dozen contemporary African-American community builders and was done in collaboration with celebrated photographer Yves Richard Blanc. The exhibit is currently on display on the museum's second floor and will be available for viewing through June. Today, however, Dr. Nevergold will be speaking to us about a different subject, Ida Dora Fairbush, a community builder in her own right. In 2019, Dr. Nevergold published Ida Dora Fairbush, Buffalo's First African-American Teacher, a Pioneer. Barbara, first off, thank you for joining us. And I'd like to start off just by asking, how did you first learn about Ida Fairbush? And for how long have you been studying her life?
1: Oh, my goodness, this goes back like maybe 20 years. Um, it was 20 years ago or more now that my colleague, Dr. Peggy Brooks Bertram, and I co founded the Uncrowned Queens Institute. And our goal was to collect, document, um, preserve the biographies of African American women, and particularly those that were little known, those that are in danger of being lost. And in the process, uh, I came across Ida Dough Fairbush, and I learned that she was the first black teacher in Buffalo, and that was about it. And I've, I've become increasingly concerned that too much of our history, African American history at least, is built on the first, the first this, the first that, the first you know woman, the first man, uh, with very little behind it. So I've made it my mission at this point to flesh out those biographies and to add more to the life of an individual other than their accomplishment as the first this or that. And Ida Dorr Fairbush is one of the first individuals I started uh, to do this work on.
0: Now, her story is one with which I, as a longtime student of local history, wasn't very familiar. In fact, it wasn't until you and I started working together on the museum's continuum exhibit for uh, Erie County's Bicentennial that I learned about her from your work. So first off, would you be able to give us a bit of Ida's background or the family life and maybe where her interests in becoming a teacher originated?
1: Ida Dorf Fairbush was born in 1869 in Buffalo, New York. And she was one of really 11 children of John and Amanda Fairbush. And um, unfortunately, uh, given the times and so forth, um, only three of those 11 children survived. Uh, Ida, uh, an older brother, Nelson Fairbush, who uh, is another person who's on my list of, of people to talk about or to write about more fully. Uh, and uh, a younger sister, Olivia, Uh, and um, she grew up in Buffalo, of course. Uh, I'm not sure how she um, decided to become a teacher, what led to that, but certainly looking at her history as a student, we know that she was accomplished. She was most certainly one of a very few African-American students in her class. So in eighth grade, she earned the Jesse Ketchum Award, Silver Award, and she was, uh, you know, as I mentioned, very, one of very few African-American students, certainly in the system. At that time, and this was in 1884, um, there were under a thousand uh, African-Americans in the city of Buffalo. The African-American population had always been very small, but always also very active. Um, very proactive, and certainly when it came to education, because African-Americans just value and always valued the importance of education uh, and as a mechanism, as a tool for advancement, but also knowing that during enslavement, um, we were prevented from reading and writing. And actually anyone who was caught teaching them, certainly in the South, um, could suffer grave
0: consequences. To that point, let's expand upon what it was like for African-American children to attend school in Buffalo. In your work, you identify that in 1839, the city agreed to establish a separate school specifically for African-American children. And now this was under the city charter, which mandated separate facilities for both Black and white children. You mentioned that The location of the school changed a few times in its first few years, and it didn't land upon a permanent home until 1848, when it moved to the former school number 11, a building which would become known as the Vine Street African School.
1: Uh, You've given a lot of background about the Vine Street School and how it was initiated, but it was initiated certainly because African Americans, again, really advocated for the education of their children. And in 1838, when the school, separate school for African-American children um, was established, African-Americans still advocated because they wanted an integrated school system. That didn't happen immediately. Uh, And in 1848, when the building was given over to the African-Americans, the Vine Street building, it became the Vine Street African School, or known as the Vine Street African School. Uh, and for uh, another, almost forty years, uh, it was maintained as that, at that as that school. Um, there were African American teachers. Um, one of the principal teachers was a man by the name of Samuel Davis, who also had the honor of being the pastor of the Michigan Street Baptist Church. Uh, and Reverend Davis was uh, an educated man who came to Buffalo. Um, having taken some courses at Oberlin College, I'm not sure that he graduated. I couldn't find that he actually graduated, but he was a very forceful speaker, as an, as I said, a very educated individual. Um, even though there were individuals like Reverend Davis in the school as principal teachers, the school still um, did not provide the kind of the level of education that Africans, Americans looked for, for their children. It was old, it was in disrepair, it was cold in the winter. And most importantly, the children did not live in the district. Most of them lived outside of that district where the school was. And you know how Buffalo winters are? So when those children had to come to school in the winter, um, it was really a very daunting trip for them to make and particularly the younger ones. So again, um, that uh, advocacy, the protest that uh, led African-Americans to eventually uh, sue the district in order to integrate the schools resulted from years and years uh, of dealing with inadequate facilities, um, the inadequate teachers in some instances, and, and a poor location that for some children Um, could have been dangerous given the weather conditions at certain times.
0: Now, before we get back to Ida, let's keep going with the background of public education for Buffalo's African-American community. So during the 1860s, uh, an activist and social reformer named Henry Moxley petitioned the city to allow his children to attend School 32, which was a school attended by white children, uh, and it was in the same district that he lived. But When his request for integration was denied, he and other parents took a more daring approach. Would you mind spending just a few minutes telling that part of the story?
1: Sure. Moxley was uh, an escaped slave who came to Buffalo in about 1832 from Virginia, and he was a barber. And um, for African-Americans at that point, uh, being a barber was somewhat of a lucrative profession. So he had some funds, I think, that uh, allowed him to bring the suit uh, against the school district and the city. But before he brought the suit, um, he and the parents decided that they would have their children go to an integrated school, or an integrated school, a non-integrated school, in in this case, a white school. And when they did that, the superintendent, Mr. Fosdick, actually physically and personally escorted, and in some, um, I think, descriptions did so roughly, um, escorted those students out of the white schools and forced them back into the Vine Street School. Obviously, the parents were infuriated. That led to the lawsuit that Henry Moxley filed, uh, again, based on the first civil rights law of 1866, which um, finally recognized African-Americans as citizens of the United States and as entitled to the equal protections of the law.
0: And what was the result of his lawsuit? Did it have any effect on ultimately uh, desegregating Buffalo schools?
1: Okay, Harry uh, Moxley and others lost that lawsuit. And um, the schools still remained segregated until 1872, and at that point, um, the city decided to change the city charter, and the city charter was ultimately what had allowed the city to have a segregated school district because the charter required the separation of white children and black children in schools. At that point, as I said, 1872, um, I'm not sure what happened uh, because Again, African Americans never stopped lobbying, never stopped advocating, never stopped protesting. Um, you know to integrate the schools, but finally, I guess they were heard. Uh, times change, and in 1872, the school was uh, the schools were integrated. Now, the Vine Street School didn't close um, immediately at that point. They actually stayed open, and they had a, a small population of students who continued to go there until about 1881 or 1882, um, when they were no longer sustainable uh, as as their own school. And again, um, given the conditions of the building uh, and all of the other problems that had ensued with that school, um, it was time for it to close.
0: So, getting back to Ida Fairbush, uh, we spoke a bit about her early life, her schooling uh, accomplishments, or winning the Jesse Ketchum Award. So, what came next for her?
1: She went on to high school, Central High School in Buffalo, which was the only high school at that time. Uh, And she graduated in 1888, 1889. Uh, And after she graduated, uh, it seems that she didn't go to school right away. Um, I think that. One of the influences on her going to school, and particularly to Wilberforce, was the pastor of the Vine Street AME Church at that time. His name was Reverend Horace Talbert, and he was no uh, relationship to that other famous Talbert, Mary Burnett Talbert. Reverend Talbot, as the, the minister of the Vine Street AME Church, um, subscribed, I guess, to the philosophy of the church, which was very, very supportive. Of education and particularly having um, post secondary education. He himself was a graduate of Wilberforce University, which was the first African American uh, university established uh, in the United States uh, and now continually uh, continues uh, as a, a historically black college university. But uh, Reverend Talbert. I believe undoubtedly influenced Ida to uh, consider Wilberforce for post-secondary school. She was the organist of the church uh, at the time and during his pastorate. And in 1890, we find that she's made the decision to go to Wilberforce. The community supports her. They give her this wonderful send-off, the tribute to, uh, I think, the, the, uh, again, importance that they had for education. And also the the fact that again, Buffalo's African-American community was very small, very close knit. And um, you find that kind of support for members uh, of the community and in, in Ida's case, you find that kind of support all during her college experience because um, I was able to trace some of the other accomplishments that she had Uh, accomplishments and challenges that she had while she was at Wilberforce. She, um, the first year, it was noted in the Cleveland Gazette that she uh, won the Derrick Medal, which was a very prestigious medal for uh, the most uh, uh, accomplished essay submitted by a female student. Uh, And then the president of the university is quoted as saying she's a very talented student and very accomplished. So you see in the Gazette these little articles, these little vignettes that talk about um, Ida and what's happening in school. And those are probably put there by a, quote, local correspondent in Buffalo. It may have been her brother, Nelson, who was a correspondent for a period of time with the Cleveland Gazette. And he writes about her uh, later on, we'll talk about when she became the first African-American teacher hired. But I just want to say one more thing about her experience in school. She went for, uh, for a teacher's, and that was at that point, the normal school. So she went to the normal school at um, Wilberforce to become a teacher. And one of those vignettes uh, in the in the paper following her career uh, Acknowledged that she had suffered some kind of illness; it wasn't, uh, you know, detailed, but it did note that she was not well, and she had to come home for about a semester, and so she lost some time in school, and she did not graduate uh, as anticipated, but she did graduate in 1893 or 1894. Um, interestingly enough, I have not been able to find any notice or any mention of that graduation, which is surprising, um, at least in the Cleveland Gazette. So, and none of the Buffalo newspapers that I've checked had anything um, announcing her graduation. So um, that's a little mystery that we still have to kind of run down. Hopefully the next person that picks up this research will follow through on that.
0: Now, following her time at Wilberforce, Ida took the exam to become a teacher, one which A total of 90 students took and only 25 of whom passed. Still, with that 27% passing rate among applicants, one of whom being Ida, she wasn't immediately offered a position. It takes a bit of time before she's brought on as an educator. Now, did you find anything in your research about how exactly she was hired or the circumstances by which she wasn't immediately offered that job?
1: Right. And again, there's a story behind uh, what happened. To how, as to how she got the job, supposedly. And again, uh, it's a story that was told actually by Reverend Jesse Nash, who was the pastor of the Michigan Street Baptist Church, um, not actually at the time, or actually perhaps at the time that Ida um, finished school. I'd have to go back and I'd check, but he was the pastor there for over 50 years and also a, a very important community leader in the African-American community at that time. Um, Reverend Nash says that there, um, there were two candidates who were being considered for superintendent of the Buffalo schools, and there were two African-American av- advocacy groups, um, political groups as a matter of fact. One was a Democratic uh, Club, the Colored Democratic Club, and the other was the Col- Colored Republican League. And they got together and they promised support for whichever of the two candidates would agree to hire an African-American teacher. Um, Emerson, Henry Emerson, was um, made the superintendent at that time. And Emerson himself, later on when he was asked about that, um, and there was something written in the contemporary papers about him making that deal vociferously refuted that he would actually make a deal like that. And uh, he threatened to sue the newspaper that printed the story. So however it occurred, Ida was um, selected to be the first, uh, but she did not get a full-time position. She was uh, um, put into a, a substitute position for a period of time and again, kind of scrutinized. Uh, And um, she was given some very difficult students, apparently, uh, elementary students, and she did quite well. Uh, And uh, the the newspapers, again, touted the fact that this young woman had really done a good job, so maybe it was time to give her the opportunity to become a full-time teacher. But they also admonished uh, anyone thinking about um, what a, a weight, I guess, she had on her shoulders to understand that um, it was up to her, it rests. I think the quote was, "It rests with her to pave the way," um, meaning that others uh, following her would do well to follow her example.
0: Now, when Ida's finally in the classroom, is she teaching just African American students, or uh, integrated classes, or
1: actually, it seems that she only taught white students. The uh, and, and again. She taught at School 6, which is uh, still open in the Buffalo Public Schools today. It's on South Division, and it appears that uh, her students were made up of a very large group of immigrant children, mostly Italian. Uh, Apparently, she had some facility with language, or at least with working with those children, who didn't uh, have English as their first language. And for 40 years, Ms. Fairbush taught at school six. And um, from what I've read and what I've researched, it has been said that she never taught any black children. She only taught white children. Uh, I think that's probably not exactly correct because she was very active in the community she was active with a group of, of women called the Phyllis Wheatley Club of Colored Women, uh, whose goal was to really provide the community with you know, supportive um, programming uh, like we do today. And um, she obviously would have taught those children who are African-American children. But in the in the school itself, it's believed that she never taught any children who are of African-American descent.
0: Now, you mentioned her involvement with the Phyllis Wheatley Club. Were there any other social or community organizations with which she was affiliated?
1: She was certainly involved in her church in the, um, what was at that time, the Vine Street African Methodist Episcopal Church. Um, But she was also involved with an individual that I mentioned early, um, Mary Burnett Talbert, uh, Mrs. Talbert. Um, was a civil rights leader. Um, her history itself is worthy of, I think, two or three podcasts. But anyway, as a, as a friend, uh, confidant uh, of Mrs. Talbert, Ida would have been involved in, in the activities that Mrs. Talbert was involved in. Um, the NAACP, she was very active. Um, Mrs. Talbert organized a, uh, a group called the M- Million Women March, movement, which was uh, an anti-lynching movement. So Ida would have been involved in that anti-lynching movement. Um, Mrs. Talbert also was involved in the preservation of the Frederick Douglass Home uh, in Washington. And so I believe that um, Ida, although her name doesn't appear in a lot of the programs, it does in some of the programs reflecting the activities of Mrs. Talbert that these are also activities that she would have been engaged in. And again, even if it were not for her friendship and her relationship with Mrs. Talbert, these were the kinds of activities that black women were involved in at that point in time. And I should make one more um, mention of suffrage because that was very important as well. Uh, And very often black women are not mentioned uh, for their role in the suffrage movement but they were very active. So these were activities that women of Ida's time were involved in, and she more than likely was involved in all of these as well.
0: In June of 1937, after having spent four decades teaching in the Buffalo Public Schools, Ida Fairbush retired. With her teaching career behind her, how did she spend the rest of her years?
1: Well, this is where the story becomes um, really sad because uh, after her retirement from teaching. uh, It appears she does not have very many um, close friendships. She certainly doesn't have any family. Uh, Her brother died uh, young. Her sister died in a traffic car accident um, where she was struck actually by a car in 1934. So um, Ida essentially is alone and she develops a psychosis, she develops mental illness. Now, Ida was admitted to the Buffalo Psychiatric Center uh, um, about 1943, I believe, and after two years, she dies in 1945. Again, I think a, a symbol of the fact that she was alone is that she left all of her belongings, whatever they were, in her will to her doctor. There was there was no one close to her other than this individual that she wanted to have in her will, and then she was buried uh, in a, a grave that never had a marker until about three years ago. So, for a woman who had the impact and the influence and made the contributions that she did to the community, it's rather sad that uh, at the end um, she's forgotten.
0: You mentioned that she didn't have a grave marker up until a few years ago. How did that come about?
1: Ida's buried at Richlawn Cemetery in Cheektawaga, and she's actually buried not very far from a contemporary, Grace Pendleton, and it was Grace Taylor Pendleton, uh, again, another um, influential woman. Uh, and um, Mrs. Pendleton is buried in the same, uh, the same cemetery. She was not only a contemporary of Ida's, but at one time they were friends. And uh, she also does not have a grave marker. In the process of her family, I'd uh, been looking at making sure that her grave was marked. At the time, the Grace Pendleton's family was looking at her gravesite. They were told that there was another grave site, um, this one belonging to Ida, that also did not have a grave marker. Uh, I got information from uh, several sources, but uh, principally from the Deputy Mayor Ellen Grant, who was very, very um, concerned that here we had two African-American women uh, who were instrumental community builders, as we call them, uh, whose uh, final resting places were not properly identified. This brought together myself uh, and several other people, including the president of the cemetery group, uh, to um, advocate for and to actually raise funds to place markers at both grave sites.
0: Now, Barbara, obviously your work is much more far-reaching than just Dora Fairbush. You've worked both individually and with the Uncrowned Queens Institute to establish a, a much wider array of these important, notable African-American biographies, particularly uh, of local note. Could you speak just a little bit about the importance of what you've done with your organization and why people need to know about it?
1: I think when we started um, this conversation, you asked me what inspired me uh, to work on on Ida's um, biography, and I indicated that it really began with the Uncrowned Queens and our mission to preserve um, the biographies of African American women. Ultimately, we added men, and that's why we call it Uncrowned Community Builders, Um, but again, and very often, particularly in the uh, cases of the older uh, African American residents who've been residents here in Buffalo, the um, the biographies are reduced to one or two factoids, and it really is annoying to me <laughs> that that one's life is reduced to a factoid. And so uh, I found that there really is um, a um, a wealth, a treasure of information um, about African Americans in Buffalo, even during the 19th century, when we were less than a thousand residents uh, in a a um, city that had hundreds of thousands of people. And so um, starting researching that, um, I found uh, a slave family, actually, that uh, I started with the third member of the family, third generation of the family, uh, only to find out that there were two generations previous to them who um, had escaped slavery and settled in Buffalo, uh, who were quite well known, who were influential, who were wealthy at the time, um, that one would not consider African-Americans to be wealthy. And so the information is out there, but it does take time. It does take perseverance. Uh, It does take a commitment to unearth it.
0: Dr. Nevergold, again, thank you so much for sitting down with us and sharing this incredible story. And to everyone listening, please stop in and see the museum's feature exhibit, Say Their Names, Honor Their Legacies, which was created by the Uncrowned Queens Institute, of which Dr. Nevergold is a co-founder. Thank you all for listening, and we'll be back soon. The Buffalo History Museum receives operating support from Erie County, the City of Buffalo, the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Additional support is provided by M&T Bank and from our donors, members, and friends.